for your weekly dose of Wayne's Comics. Happy anniversary! This podcast is now 13 years old, so to celebrate, we featured two great interviews. It starts with Dave Baker from Mary Tyler Moorhawk, then wraps up with the creators from Invader Comics series Neurocron. Dave's Mary Tyler Moorhawk is described as Johnny Quest meets Infinite Jest. The book answers the questions Who is Mary Tyler Moorhawk? How did she save the world from a dimension hopping megalomaniac? Why was her TV show canceled after only nine episodes? And what happened to the reclusive genius behind her creation? I have a great time discussing this book with Dave as we explore who the characters are, the book's mind-bending art style, and what Dave is up to in the months ahead. Be sure to tell your local comic shop you won when it's released on February 13. Then everything wraps up with my interview with the creators of Neurocron from Invader Comics. I talked with scripters Daniel Powell and Aaron Foley-Chan and artist Dennis Calero. The book is described this way. When a seemingly random murder turns up an illegal biotech-enhanced corpse, FBI agent Vera Morales pulls at the threads and becomes embroiled in a conspiracy that could very well change the course of human evolution. We talk about how the book came to be, who the characters are, and what we can expect from this high-powered team in the coming months. Be sure to support them on Kickstarter before their project ends on February 10, and let your local comic shop know you want this book, which will be released on February 28. I'm sure you're going to enjoy what they all have to say. There's a lot to get to in this episode, so let's get on with the show. Who is Mary Tyler Moorhawk? How did she save the world from a dimension-hopping megalomaniac? Why was her TV show canceled after only nine episodes? And what happened to the reclusive genius behind her creation? These are just a few of the questions that young journalist Dave Baker begins to ask himself as he unravels the many mysteries surrounding the obscure comic book, Mary Tyler Moorhawk. However, his curiosity grows into an obsession when he discovers the artist, that, oh, sorry, that the artist behind his favorite globe-trotting girl detective is also named Dave Baker. Isn't that something? So, and, and interestingly enough, who am I talking with today? But Dave Baker, the creator of Mary Tyler Moorhawk. How you doing, Dave? Hey, Wayne. Thank you for having me. And uh, that was very good. You want a job as a voiceover <laughs> artist? You- well, I've been doing this for about 13 years there about, so I've, I've learned how to read a little better as time has gone by so that's, that's good. yeah that was good man i, I enjoyed that that was nice well, i appreciate it because i i try really hard to read uh and and say things like as if they mean some things and it doesn't always come out that way but i try yeah so uh well dave why you were telling me before we started to record that uh, you've got lots of good experience in in comics why don't you tell people what it is that you've done uh prior to this book yeah so um 
you know, my name's Dave. Uh, I'm a writer and an illustrator, and I have made, uh, you know, a handful of books. Uh, I got nominated for an Eisner for Best Digital Comic for the uh, graphic novel Everyone is Tulip, which was published by Dark Horse and co-created with Nicole Gu. Um, and then I also last year had a graphic novel come out through Simon Schuster called Forest Hills Bootleg Society, um, which is about a bunch of bullied teenage girls who uh, start selling um, bootleg DVD anime in their conservative Christian boarding school. Uh, I also wrote a Star Trek miniseries for IDW, um, the cyberpunk graphic novel uh, Night Hunters for Floating World, the teen romance comic about skater kids, Fuck Off Squad for Silver Sprocket, um, and uh, a bunch of other stuff. You know, I've been around. I'm a guy. I've been doing stuff. I'm out here. Okay. I believe yeah, I, I, I buy it. I, I this is the first time I've run into your stuff, so that's why I'm kind of maybe other people might be like me and not as up on your stuff as we should be. So that's why it's good to yeah to know absolutely. these kinds of good things. Yeah, yeah. So now I've got to ask, of course, I know who Mary Tyler Moore is, mm. or or was, I guess. I, I don't know if she's still with us or not anymore. But uh, Mary Tyler Moorehawk, now that's another story. Uh, why don't you uh, fill us in as to uh, where the graphic novel came from, how the character got the name, all those kinds of good things, if you would. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the book, Mary Tyler Moore Hawk, uh, is a comic and a novel, uh, a kind of hybrid. It's a hybrid graphic novel and novel. Um, the comics part follows a troop of super scientists in a kind of adopted family organization called the Morhawk Institute for Continuing Tomorrows. And they uh, are, as you you know, read so, so brilliantly in the solicitation text, uh, trying to save the world. And that's kind of their businesses. You know, every week, somebody's coming out of the woodwork trying to end things. And so they are uh, kind of in the, mold, in the mold of a Tom Swift Jr., Buckaroo Banzai, Indiana Jones-style, Doc Savage, um, you know, group of individuals who've come together under a shared credo of maybe the world shouldn't end. Um, and so the, the comic is a kind of retro-futurist throwback thing. Um, I'm a big fan of Johnny Quest. And, uh, you know, so MTMH is my kind of um, loving homage to... Uh, that type of teen Nancy Drew, Johnny Quest, uh, Trixie Belden, uh, Torchy Lane type of, you know, teen, preteen detective adventurer. Uh, and then the prose sections, um, the book is about 300 pages long, so about 150 pages of it are comics. And then the prose sections of the book follow, uh, again, as you so um, aptly uh, read, a journalist also named Dave Baker, a hundred years in the future, who's obsessed with the TV show that was adapted from these comics and canceled after nine episodes. And so we follow him over the course of these kind of um, zines that he's publishing these journalistic articles in as he's trying to uncover why the show was canceled, who were the people that made the show, why did they make it, uh, and how the eventual cancellation of the show drove the creator of the material um, into a reclusive kind of J.D. Salinger, Steve Ditko-esque reclusion. Um, regarding the name, frankly, I forget that it's a pun 95% of the time. Uh, it absolutely <laughs> is a pun. I love Mary Tyler Moore, but 
after you've lived with a book for so long, you know, I've, I've been working on this thing for probably about five years. And I, uh, you know, you just kind of lose the things that you think are funny are the things that other people think are strange. And the things that other people think are strange are the things you think are normal because you've just been around it for so long. Um, and um, yeah, uh, the, the, the book, uh, I'm very, I'm very proud of the book. I'm very excited about it. And um, I'm so thankful that Chris Staros and everyone at Top Shelf has agreed to uh, go on this weird journey with me as I attempt to convince people to read a book that's like 300 pages long, half of which is about fictionalized versions of me hunting down fictionalized versions of me. <laughs> Okay. Now, one thing I, people always get on me because I never say this soon enough is that Mary Tyler Moorhawk will be available everywhere. Books and comics are sold on February 13, 2024. Yes. And so we want to make sure that that comes out. So, uh, so did, did you, because uh, oftentimes I end up talking with people who do crowdfunding and stuff like that. Did you crowdfund this stuff or did uh, you basically. Uh, did it all yourself because you you basically do the whole book is my understanding yeah the, the writing the lettering the coloring the uh, you name it you did it basically and so you didn't run the printing press is the only thing I figured you, you yeah yeah pretty much um i have done crowdfunding campaigns in the past um but for this book uh i didn't um for this book um you know i spent probably the entirety of the time that i was making it pitching it to various places and um you know, my agent pitched it, I pitched it, um, and, uh, you know, it, it ended up uh, ultimately landing at Top Shelf, and I'm very thankful for that. Um, but uh, for this project, yeah, I, I I managed to elude the ever-present specter of crowdfunding. <laughs> I like, I actually write, like running Kickstarters and crowdfunders and Indiegogo campaigns and whatnot. Um, I think they're fun. It's It's exciting to see the sales come in and they provide kind of an inflection point of, you know, uh, financial remuneration and validation for sometimes years worth of work that the traditional publishing world doesn't always necessarily yield in a emotionally validating way. Like it is emotionally validating, obviously, to have a book come out through a larger publisher. Um, but you, it's all it all happens behind closed doors. You don't ever see, you know, when it, when somebody buys a book at a bookstore, I don't get an email alert that's like, bing bing, you sold a book, buddy. <laughs> Um, and there's a, there's a, that's a that's a fun experience to see your work going out into the world and and connecting with people. Well, I got to ask though, are, are you going to do any signings like any in, uh, in, in bookstores and stuff? Yeah, I think so. Um, it's I, all that stuff is kind of still being negotiated to a certain degree, but yeah, that's that's my understanding. Um, you know, we had some signings for my last couple books. I did a tour in France when the French edition of Forest Hills came out over there, um, lived there for three and a half months or three months or so, and then one month in England and we did signings in both countries when we were there. Um, yeah, that, the, the French market is so different than the US. It was it was very, it was really a, a very positive experience to to see how the industry is different, how this how see how the industry is similar, um, to meet the booksellers, um, to learn about the French market that I've always kind of read about um but never experienced boots on the ground um yeah it was a it was a really uh, a great great experience 
because I've, I've interviewed people who have, have sold books over in Europe and stuff like that. They don't really deal in what we call floppies. Yeah, no. Mm-mm. Over here. They do – it's it's graphic novels and trades and all those kinds of, of longer volumes over there. They don't – you know, of course, it's a whole other ballgame over here in the States because everybody wants to have – you know, they get their floppies and bag and board them and, and CGCM and you name it. All kinds of crazy stuff goes on with it. But uh, it's interesting because you don't really see the the ratings. You know, you don't CGC a graphic novel. You you basically CGC a, a, an individual issue. But uh, it, it never fails. I, I just ordered a book I was dying to get. I ordered it from Amazon. I got it. I, said, I can't wait. It's going to be in great shape. I'm going to. I opened the bag up, and obviously somebody had sat on it while I was being, and there it was, this nice fold right halfway down the page. I was like, oh, well, at least I don't have to worry about keeping it in condition anymore. I can just read it and enjoy it. That's all. Yeah, that's a that's a bummer, though. Um, yeah. But yeah, the, the French market is very different. Um, they primarily, you know, what they call like Franco-Belgian comics come out in mm-hmm. what are referred to as bandesine. Um Mm-hmm. which is uh, usually around 48-page hardbound oversized trades. Uh, or they also have graphic novels, which are, you know, longer, more serious, typically a little bit more prosaic comics that are, you know, like what we have. Um, and then they do have long-running characters, um, but they they're, they don't typically have long-running superhero characters. They're usually kind of science fiction or fantasy or Western characters that are there long-running serials mm-hmm. so they're not big in the superheroes over there like we are over no here not, not particularly i mean it it does they they're there obviously but it's not it's not to the, the same degree no Mm-mm. okay in fact now i gotta ask actually, of course oh sorry I was just, uh but in in fact our book um forest hills because of the way that my collaborator nicole goo draws and because of the way the story is presented, even though it does take place in America, because it's a period piece, uh, there's kind of a French, uh, it's called Junais, which is like young adults. Um, and they they like a lot of books that are centered on Americans or like the French idea of what it is like to live in America, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And... I guess our book fits into that category and therefore our book in the French market is not a book translated from an English edition into a French edition. It's marketed as a French edition. Like it's they especially because Nicole's lineage is French, her last name is Goo, which is a French name, G-O-U-X, they'd like the French publisher actively pretends like it's a french book and they've printed it at a larger size to make it look like a french book and when we were doing signings over there we would show up at you know the bonacine stores and sometimes people would be like oh you're not french oh weird (laughs) (laughs) i was gonna ask you do you speak french because uh you know if you're over in france and stuff like that you you can have somebody go with you that can translate for you and stuff like that but it'd be so much more impressive if you were able to speak french you know, to the people. Oh so. yeah, you know, Wayne. I gotta be honest, man. I when we went when we started this, I didn't speak a fucking lick of French. And then after living there for three months, I speak 
enough to order a cheeseburger, and that's about it. <laughs> Nicole, Nicole, they have cheeseburgers over in France. Huh? Uh, oh yeah, yeah, they they do. They they, they enjoy a, a burger. Um, and uh, Nicole speaks a little bit of French. Um, mm-hmm. but the weirdest thing about the French system, or the most unusual, it's not weird. It's just the more the most unusual thing is how honorific and and excited French readers are to interact with the artists that they they don't do signings like how we do them where you just sit down at a table and sign your name on the front of the comic and give it to the person. Um, it's called a dedicas, which is like a dedication is the l- rough translation. But what it means is you're expected to kind of sit there and draw in the graphic novel for a good 25 to 30 minutes and have a meaningful conversation with somebody. And the signing is less important than a the quality of the drawing and b the uh, the kind of exchange that you have with the people that you're uh, interacting with on both sides of the table and that was so wild to me like <laughs> you know when we got to our first signing and there was like a giant table and chairs and you know shit and they were like all right you're gonna sit here for the next four hours and i was like well what <laughs> there's no one here and it's like oh yeah no we've got like you know pre-sales of books you know it's gonna take you a while to get through them and it's like will it they're like, yeah, you got to draw them, you know, like finished illustrations. And Nicole was like, oh, my God, what? <laughs> you meant they didn't tell you this before you went to the, the not, store? Not you really. Had I mean, we. Oh, wow. They kind of briefed us that like there's some differences. You know, the publisher briefed us that there are some differences in the French and American mm-hmm. markets. And I think they made some overtures of like, you know, just so you're aware, you're going to be expected to kind of draw in the books but not to the degree or not to the level of specificity, you know, like not that anybody was mean or set anything up to be an ambush. It's just a different system, you know, and it's a different level of cultural <laughs> expectations. Mm-hmm. You, you learn how to carry on a conversation. Yeah. But, but was that a challenge though? I mean, if people came in and they didn't speak English, what'd you do? I mean, you had somebody to translate it for you? Uh, it, it varied. Um, you know, some of the time we did, you know, the, the publisher sent us up with a, a, a very small book festival, you know, where we were like the only Americans at the book festival and they sent somebody from the publisher who spoke English and French to be the translator. Um, some of them, a lot of French people speak English. They just don't culturally, there's kind of a cultural, this is a, a broad stereotype that doesn't encompass everything that is the French lived experience, but <laughs> in generalizations, sometimes there is a, a desire to not be wrong and to not do something that might be considered less than perfect. So mm-hmm. a lot of French people can understand English and can speak it honestly pretty well but because they're not like really fluent or you know maybe their vocabulary or their pronunciation is a little limited um they they sometimes refrain from that out of a sense of politeness or trying to demure uh be demure about it um so it would kind of vary depending on the place and the people sometimes we were in places that were a little more rural and nobody spoke english and then it was mostly on nicole to try and both draw and talk to people sometimes there were translators or when people did speak some english i would kind of put on a show and speak enough rough french of like i was 99 percent of the time just speaking english and then i would just throw in a french word that i know in order to try and be respectful and be like look i'm trying to meet you halfway but i don't really fucking speak the language 
<laughs> um, but yeah, it was, it was oh great. man, yeah. Because I, I I saw a cartoon, I think it was French one time, and it was based in America. And the, it was so interesting to see how the French looked at Americans versus how we as Americans look at ourselves. Mm-hmm. And the one thing I noticed was that almost all Americans were grossly, and I mean grossly obese, massively heavy, you know, obviously eating constantly because – they could barely walk down the sidewalk and stuff like that. And I was like, do we really look like that to, to people? Because I, I was I was really surprised by it. But everywhere they went in America, it's, everybody was, was that way. And I was like, wow, I, I, I'm terrified to think of what uh, they would think that we think of the of French when we go. <laughs> if they see an American cartoon that was based in France, but I wonder what they thought we would think of them because it was – I just got a huge kick out of, out of that to, to see that. And that's, and I talked with some friends of mine who, who had relatives over and they said, Oh yeah, a lot of the people over there think that's how Americans look all the time. I was like, okay, uh, if you say so, I'll take your word for it. So, so, yeah, so how, I mean, you were over there for a couple of months, you said, huh? Yeah. Yeah. We were in, we lived in Angoulême for a little while, which is where the biggest comics festival is. And we attended the festival and then uh, we lived in Bordeaux for two months and then after that we went and lived in london for a month so earlier in 2023 we, we lived for about four months or so in europe um which was really fun it was a very positive experience and uh you know made a lot of made a lot of work and you know it was it was cool um but yeah, my, my experience was every every french person i met was was so giving and kind and um patient and and warm and welcoming and it was it was you know, nothing but a, a above and beyond. They were they were so nice to me. I mean, I think I think the the French stereotype of the snooty French person is is just, <laughs> in my experience, just pat- patently false. It's it, you know, every everyone that I met was just so incredibly kind. Because you know, we tend to uh, extrapolate things to far way out there. Like I said, that they they every American looked like they were you know grossly obese and stuff. And and I, I always get a kick because you know we, you're right that there's that stereotype of the French are like that, are snooty. You know, their fingers under their nose, pushing their nose up and stuff. And I always I, I get a huge kick because everybody I know who speaks French has not been that way at all. And so I've been like. I wonder where that stereotype came from. I can't figure it out. Yeah, I, I have but, no yeah. idea, but I, I all I can say is it was a you know a great time, um, and uh, the French Bandesine and comic book fans specifically were like so incredibly cool. They were just the best. So, are you going back for this book? Uh, we'll see if we get a French edition. Um, I have another book that is signed up for a French edition. Um, so I'll definitely go back for that when that gets released, but that currently doesn't have a, um, a release date on it. Um, <laughs> the, this book, uh, right now I'm just trying to get it through the system of the American English publication. And then I'll focus on trying to find or figure out a, uh, a, a French home for it. Um, because uh, hmm. the French market is super fun. I like a lot of stuff. I read a lot of Bandesine. And um, they also get stuff translated that we don't get over here. Um, hmm. uh, so I, I read a lot of like weird Korean and Japanese stuff that we don't get in English, but the French market gets. Um, so hmm. yeah. Interesting. Uh, see, I, I like 
uh, books that expose me to different cultures and sure. stuff like that. Cause I, I learned so much. There was a book that I have, it's called, uh, 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 Vietnam America. And it talks about the, the Vietnamese people that have moved to America and how they integrate into the American society. I, I knew nothing about any of that. And when I got done reading the book, I was happened to be at San Diego comic-con and I was walking through the, the, the floor and I looked up and there was the booth for that. That mm. book and I went up and I said, "Oh my gosh!" I said, "I read this book. I loved it. Oh, I, I knew zero about the culture, but now I, you know, I, I've got a better appreciation. Not that I could ever, you know, say I'm fluent or anything in any stuff, but I just really enjoyed the book because I felt like I learned so much about it. And the guys, wow, wow, thank you. Oh, that's so nice to hear. I said, well, you know, I, I, I like those kinds of books. I like something that I, I go places I haven't been before and see things I haven't seen before because that's that's what I think comics do the best." Yeah, absolutely. So, anyway, so I, I got to ask. Of course, uh, I get the Mary Tyler Moore part. It's the Hawk part that I I don't get. Where did Moorhawk come from? Is that like a phrase that you borrowed because you got the Mary Tyler Moore in, and then the Hawk just how how did that get added onto it? You know, I don't even really know where that came from. I think I think originally the idea was like to do something that was kind of in line with Michael Moorcock, his writings, you know, I really like, you know, Jerry Cornelius and I really like, you know, uh, fucking, Oh my God, his, his fantasy series, the guy with the talking sword. Oh my God. What the hell is the name of that fantasy series? (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. If Mike Mignola did an adaptation of the comics in the Mm eighties. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I like Michael Moorcock's writing, quite a bit so initially i was like oh it'd be funny if there was a character that was named mary tyler moorcock and it would be a play on a bunch of moorcock themes and then i was like i don't know if i can seriously get away with calling a book mary tyler moorcock that sounds <laughs> that sounds a little dirty so then it it just shifted to Moorhawk. yeah I, I don't even really know yeah i don't i don't have a real explanation other than just like it's kind of a pun on mary tyler moore um mm-hmm. yeah i don't know Okay, well, you know, the inspiration strikes, and you're never exactly sure where it came from. Yeah, I was, I, I was, a, uh, I was talking to uh, a creator one time, and he had a book, and he couldn't figure the name for f- what this should be called, and he was at a funeral of all places, and they started talking about uh, certain phrases, and they and he kept saying that phrase over and over, and all of a sudden he went, "That's it. That's what the book's going to be called." He goes. And everybody turned around and looked down like, what? <laughs> and I said, you never know where inspiration is going to strike. Because there he was at a funeral. And all of a sudden, he got the inspiration he needed to name the book. Wow, of the cool. So that was something. Um, you never know. So uh, let's let's dive into the book some. I, one of the things, because you do all these different aspects of it, it, it this is basically a uh, two-color it's yeah. mm-hmm. largely black with uh, like a magenta, yeah, pinkish sort of a color. Yeah, the the comics sections are, um, the comics sections are uh, pencil drawings that I've you know made and then upped the contrast and photoshopped and and then colored in Procreate uh, to be a pink color, um, and so they kind of have a throwbacky vibe to them with like a like a digital fake book texture uh over the top of it so it looks like an old faded comic um my drawing style is pretty detailed and and kind of um obsessive and uh it looks 
kind of uh, you know if 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 I've if I've done my job right, hopefully. Oh my goodness! Somebody was driving by my house real fast. Um, uh, if I've done my job right, you know, hopefully it's a cool mix of a bunch of my influences, like Jeff Darrow and uh, Ish- Ishinomori and James Doko and um, Erge, you know, the creator of Tintin and and um, you know Rudy Nappy, the guy who uh, created the visual aesthetic of the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew. Um, as well as, you know, I like Bob Peak and a bunch of the like fifties illustrators and, uh, you know, so there's, there's a bunch of that soup all mixed up and then filtered through whatever, uh, shortcomings I personally have as an illustrator. <laughs> so, you know, it's a, there's a lot of obsessive, uh, noodling and weird detail and robots and characters that have overly complicated character designs. Hmm. You know, have you ever read the book that Alan Moore did called Supreme? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. they had some of this this that color background. It it looked like it was printed on on uh, older paper. Mm-hmm. Kind of look to mm-hmm. it, and I think that's kind. Of, that's yeah. I get some of that vibe from this, which I think is kind of cool. I, I like those kinds of things because it, even if you have it for several years, you won't know how old it is because you've got the color on the background. Which yeah, I think totally. is pretty cool. Yeah. So, okay, the main character, how she's a teen sleuth. It says in here it is a secret files of Mary Tyler Moorhawk. Uh, it says Mary Tyler Moorhawk is a teen sleuth, always looking for an adventure, hates people who are mean. Is she is, is she a diverse character? What 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 is what is is she, is she a person of color? Oh yes, yeah, is, she is. Yes, <laughs> oh she is. Okay, because I, I I I always want to get my 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 terminology straight with those. No, no, of all good. Okay. I mean, also right. my drawing style is fairly elastic, so you know, I could see okay. maybe there's a version where somebody interprets, you know, the way I draw differently or something. So yeah, no, yeah, she is. <laughs> now she has. And I don't want to be offensive about that, but she has sort of Mickey Mouse hair. Yeah, yeah. The, you know, she's got the two because I've seen kids go around with those like look like uh, Mickey Mouse ears. Yes. Um, and, and their hair is done that way. Is there a reason why she wears her hair like that, or is that just kind of the way you like to draw it? Um. Yeah. So I think the character of MTMH is you know when I when I first started the book, um, I was thinking a lot about. The, specifically the way Rudy Nappy uh, depicts perception and how the kind of superpower or wish fulfillment attribute that the Stratemeyer Syndicate novels, uh, the, all the Hardy Boys and the uh, Nancy Drew novels specifically, um, kind of mm-hmm. they're selling this idea that children have the ability to perceive the truth. You know, the the tropes of the genre are the teens or preteen detectives aren't believed. They think something's going on. They think uh, Mr. Juniper down the road is secretly selling land to oil barons or whatever it is. And none of the adults in their lives believe them. Then you read the story of how they uncover the mystery and prove that Mr. Juniper is doing this underhanded business stuff. And then eventually once they've kind of figured out how the world once they once they can prove what they innately emotionally feel about the world, then the the adults will listen to them. And there's something about that idea that there's that 
as a child, you're so in tuned with this emotional centrality and so um, kind of tapped into this weird metaphysical currency uh, as as a younger person that you lose as you get older um, that that's why those books are successful, right? And so for her character design, I really wanted to come up with a way of visually representing that she's good embodied. Um, and I draw with a lot of hard angles and uh, square shapes normally. And uh, so both as a personal metaphor of like, well, m- if my natural drawing style is to be angular um, and I'm a flawed adult, as the childish version of that, maybe I'll do it as all circles. And then also to add on to that, um, humans are, are um, predisposed to like circular things because they remind us of our young. Like we're genetically encoded to be drawn to circles because of, you know, babies' heads are like six times the size of their bodies or whatever. So um, the idea to have her head be these kind of, five circles of her head, the two circles for her ears, and then the two circles for her like Afro buns. Um, it, it felt like it could both be a fun visual kind of eye catching gag and also a, a, something of a visual metaphor to try and drive at the center of the character that she's effortlessly good and not good because she has to uh, attempt to be good because it's the right thing to do for external approval, but that she is innately good, almost kind of, you know, like that she's, you know, there's these, there's a subgenre of Chinese films about these kind of like um, Buddhist warrior monks who are just like so good that they stand in front of the camera and the wind blows in front of them and they're, they're unfazed by whatever the evil of the day is. And, <laughs> you know, I, I wanted not necessarily to depict that ag- idea, but to have that emotional idea that she is, so pure and that she's going to obviously have to endure family struggles and, in, you know, come up against um, situations that may or may not um, inherently just be solved by being a good per- person or, or that she'll be tested in her goodness. Um, but that, that the kind of lineage of these teen sleuths, teen adventurers, teen uh, detectives could somewhat be, updated and kind of uh, moved in a in a both new direction and also um, keep it centrally thematically core to what it has always been because hmm. it, it almost looked like radar to me the way that the, the, if I wasn't thinking Disney mouse I, I thought that was like two radar yeah I could see that uh, yeah. sensors because I that's gonna make think because I, I just it's so interesting because your style is different it, it's funny how you can keep you compare it to other uh comics of other countries and, and stuff like that which i think is cool because you know we're, we're not nearly exposed to those kinds of things as much as we should be right so yeah. i think that's great that you're actually bringing some of these cultures to us as we get to to, to see them and, and explore them and stuff it's really really something very creative and very fun to see now i gotta ask there's a couple at least two more characters i want to ask about uh roxanne roxy racer beloved bodyguard has an attitude is x science division seven which i assume is like FBI or yeah, what's yeah. an X Science Division Seven? Is that mm-hmm. what that is? Yeah. So right. Roxy Good. Roxy Racer is um, 
well, first, she's one of my favorite characters to draw, and I, I think you can see that in the book. Um, her and, and another character specifically, I think whenever they show up, you can tell I'm excited about drawing them. Um, and she's kind of uh, cut from, you know, the, the comics sections of the books uh, play a lot with tropes and play a lot with kind of these archetypes of this subgenre of kind of teen adventurers. And um, Roxy is, uh, you know, her nickname, Roxy Racer, or her, her surname, Racer, is obviously an homage to uh race bannon roger race bannon from from doug wildey ah. seminal uh cartoon mm-hmm. johnny quest mm-hmm. um i yep. love i love johnny quest it's it's one of my favorite things ever and um race bannon specifically i i love um i love the archetype of a kind of grumpy surly member of the ensemble who's not quite a member of the family by blood, but is really the emotional core of the family um, because of their kind of earnestness and their, uh, the role that they play in the greater social ecosystem of a team or a group or what, what have you. Um, And uh, so, yeah, Roxy is the, is kind of the, when we meet them in the story, in the comics half of the book, Roxy is kind of the one holding everything together where, um, Mary Tyler Morhawk's mother, her biological mother has passed away. And so they're running the Institute um, with her stepmother, uh, adoptive robotic brother, cutie boy, and uh, their former bodyguard, Roxy Racer, trying to keep this thing afloat um, when that all gets kind of, you know, it's already kind of falling apart. And then things go even crazier when this villain from a previous timeline um, shows up uh, and says, guess what, guys? I'm not dead, and I'm really pissed off, so I'm going to end the world. <laughs> now, you mentioned the other one I wanted to ask about, the world's nicest robot. Oh, yeah, cutie boy, uh, yeah. Cutie boy's Mary's reanimated cybernetic brother gets stronger the more people are nice to him. Is kind of annoying. It's funny, as people are nice to him, he gets stronger, but he's still annoying. I found that kind of interesting. Yeah, uh, he almost because I'm a Batman guy, he almost looks like Batman as if he's half Batman, half Bruce Wayne, the way that he looks. Oh, I'll, yeah, I'll take it. Uh, yeah, the, <laughs> the cutie boy idea is basically like, you know, what if you had what if you had um, kind of a mix of uh, Kakaida and Astro Boy and R2D2 all kind of molded into one. Uh, uh, ad- adorably annoying character uh, who is also secretly <laughs> the most powerful member of the team as long as you pay him enough compliments. Um, yeah, he's, uh, you know, he's uh, he's a little... He's, I mean, you, it, it doesn't really get into it actually in the book, but he's a little boy who died and then was resurrected by Mary Tyler Mohawk's biological mother. Um, <laughs> and uh, so now his like brain waves or whatever are in this kind of cute <laughs> nuclear powered, you know, laser spouting, like, you know, nine year old or whatever he is. And um, <clears throat> yeah, he's, he's definitely the other character that you can, at least I can tell when I look at it of like, Oh yeah, I, I obviously really liked drawing this guy. Um, <laughs> you know, he's kind of got a, like you said, like a bisected helmet design and mm-hmm, very mm-hmm. kind of uh, cute and small and diminutive. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I I enjoyed sometimes. 
sometimes the names of things entertain me. Uh, Gordon Grandeur, The Sleepless Wonder. Mm, mm-hmm. I like that name. I also liked uh, um, <laughs> Dr. Walks Among Us Jr. Mm, mm, mm. And Evil Mask, the former leader of the Death, death Cult, which I, I like this. <laughs> All kinds. And then there's Charlie, 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 and the description says, He's Charlie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, basically, just for the listener, the thing that you're describing is in the comics sections of the book, uh, there are these kind of double page splashes of the entire cast, um, like running or jumping or or falling or standing on rocks looking cool. And um, I love drawing crowd scenes and I love designing characters and i love coming up with weird characters um there's another one in there i don't remember if he's in that first one or the second one a dude just named the chimp the chimp manzi and he's like a half human half half, uh chimpanzee guy i i guess he's like a you know like a detective or something but the joke of those the joke of those pages is that they are these massive sprawling cast photos um, somewhat similar to the way C.C. Beck used to do uh, cast photos in old Captain Marvel comics, um, mm-hmm. or the way that Claremont uh, would do the dramatas personae, uh, kind of like quick snapshot of like, these are the 15 characters that are going to show up in this book, but like turn up to 11, so there's like 40 fucking characters jumping through the air or whatever. Um, and they'll have little fake biographies and you know, some of them show up in the book and are pivotal characters. And frankly, some of them aren't. Some of them just never appear anywhere other than that little, you know, whatever it is, page or maybe two or three pages where they are featured in those um, cast photos. Um, yeah, the 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 joke there, I guess, being that, like, the universe is so big that the book can't even contain all of the characters. Um which is a kind of funny idea to me. Mm-hmm. It's kind of funny because one of the things I noticed that you, you the format you seem to like a lot are the nine panel mm-hmm. pages. Mm-hmm. I see a lot of those and that's kind of fun. Uh, Keith Giffen was famous for doing those kinds of things. So I think that's pretty cool to see that nine panel format being used so much. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, all of my books uh, have a different kind of, a form formalist rubric to them. Um, some of them are all six panel grids. Some of them use footnotes. Some of them use um, integrated essays or um, captions. Uh, I, I really like the, the formalist side of comics and the, the language of comics and how to push and pull a reader's experience based off of not just what's being presented, but how it's being presented. And um, the specifics of Mary Tyler Moorhawk is that, you know, uh, I don't think it's going to come as a massive revelation, but like it deals a lot with becoming lost in your creation or having your creation taken away from you or having the industry not treat someone in a creative position the way that we would all hope that they would have been treated and what that does as an end result. Um, And I think you don't have to look very far to, uh, you know, one of the titans of the industry, Steve Ditko, and how he was treated. And so the, the book, the way that the book is made and those nine panel grids and the claustrophobia of those nine panel grids for me is like trying to make a book that feels like what if Steve Ditko like dropped acid? Um, 
Okay. <laughs> I, uh, I, 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 I won't say that I knew Steve Ditko, but I wrote letters with him and I exchanged correspondence with him for a little while. And, um, uh, yeah, I, I love his work, especially the Charlton era of his, his, uh, oh, bibliography. Yeah. um, that's good stuff. Yeah. Into the ghostly manor is really cool. Um, Peter Cannon is really cool. Um, you know, I, I, I like the weird stuff. Uh, there's another, there's another book that he did, which is just him actively like trying to steal back Dr. Strange from Marvel called Dr. Grave, uh, which <laughs> is really fun where it's, it's just a Dr. Strange comic. Um, with the name changed, which is pretty fascinating. Um, and, uh, yeah, but, uh, but yeah, so the nine, the nine panel grids are definitely a, a kind of visual reference to Ditko and those like sixties illustrators. So is there more coming with Mary Tyler, uh, Mary Tyler Moorhawk in the future? Or is this the, all is the, the whole story? Uh, well, the, I, I if I say that it might be a little bit of a spoiler, but there is a, okay. Towards the end of the book, some things happen, and it it provides an answer to that question. Um, okay. And uh, right now, I will say that I have not made a direct sequel to Mary Tyler Moorhawk, but the book that I've been drawing for the past year or so, Halloween Boy, uh, features some of the supporting cast and takes place loosely you know kind of in the same universe as mtmh and um there are crossover characters that show up in halloween boy well i have to say it's really creative uh i I like the variation between the cartoon the the comic comic format and the uh the text thank you because you know, i i find that very interesting of course you have to shift your gears yes. when you do it and i think that's very nice very nicely done i like the way you do that thank you yeah i mean i think that there's a um a a real uh like i like that term gear shift because i i think you hit the nail on the head right there because um the way i draw and the way i conceive of story and then the way that the prose sections uh because the prose sections you're reading, you're basically reading like an epistolary novel of excerpts from a zine called physicalist today. Uh, because in, in this, in this fictitious future, um, the idea of owning physical objects or collecting things that are, uh, you know, three dimensional objects has been outlawed. So that world of kind of collecting and speculating and, uh, becoming obsessed with weird nostalgic, things has gone underground and so the journalist who you're reading his his kind of essays about his life and about what it's like to live in this future and what it's like to be a physicalist um are told in these zines that are designed by my friend uh mike lopez and feature photography by uh, this brilliant artist named david catalano and I I personally can't think of anything that feels like this exactly. Like, um, you know, when I was writing it, the Physicalist Today stuff, uh, I was trying to go after like a Mark Z. Danielewski's House of Leaves or like a David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest or maybe even his essays, like a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again or uh, Consider the Lobster. And... Um, I wanted the interplay of the way that those writers break up text planes in the way that they use the physical real estate of a novel 
to have multiple kind of data streams happening at once and the footnote mechanics or the kind of um, end papers or the prefaces that are all like weird and fucked up um, to, to take some of that visual language and incorporate it into a novel that is a comic. Like if anybody has ever read consider the lobster or a supposedly fun thing I'll never, I'll never do again. To me, they are comics the way that David Foster Wallace has a central dramatic argument that he's making. And then at the bottom of the page, there's all these footnotes that are providing more context or jokes or weird discursive, you know, kind of diatribes to me is like, you know, a comic is, uh, two images separated by a gutter, uh, that has some sort of artwork or text. So there's two sustaining pieces of information that your brain kind of uses that gutter to say, okay, this happens. And then this happens, right? It's kind of an emotional persistence of vision. You know, we don't, we're not projecting 24 images a second in order to trick the brain into literally thinking that these still images are one moving image, like in film that, you know, that's where the term persistence of vision comes from. But the idea that the we're using persistence of ideas almost that it would have just this overload maximalist approach to both the comics sections and the novel sections where you would um just as you were processing like oh wow there's this weird cast of like 35 characters and who's this guy and what's charlie 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 that's really strange and then you turn the page expecting to find out more about those characters and now you're dropped (laughs) into a whole other universe where maybe those things are or are are not real or fake or maybe the character you're reading uh that's telling you what's happening is or isn't a reliable narrator and the way that it's being told is in a way that you're not used to because most of us don't read novels that are full like high-end photography portfolios um mm-hmm. and uh yeah so I, I really was just trying to you know <laughs> swing for the fences man i don't know if i i don't know if it worked I don't know if I... I like it. it. It makes me think, which is something I really enjoy. Thank you. Thank you. It's very it's very kind of you to say, man. I really appreciate it. So uh, if people want to keep up with you on social media, how do they do that? Uh, you can find me on all the socials at xdavebakerx. Okay. Um, are there other projects? You mentioned one that you were writing. Are there other ones that, that we should know about coming? Uh, yeah. The, the book I'm doing right now is called... Uh, I'm just self-publishing it right now. Um, it's called Halloween Boy, and it's a action-adventure comic about a, a guy who thinks he's the patron saint of the impossible, and he'll only help people if they're in impossible situations. So each issue is a one-and-done action-adventure story, and uh, there's five issues of it total, and you can get it on my website, heydavebaker.com. Very cool, very cool. Uh are you going to be doing any conventions in America or anything along those lines? Yeah, I'm going to be doing um I'm going to be doing Emerald City C2E2 TCAF in Canada, uh New York, San Diego and uh maybe ALA I think because I think ALA is in San Diego this year. Um so yeah, so I'll I'll be around. I'll be around. Very cool. And once again, this is going to be available on February 13. So you want to be sure to ask your local shop to order that for you. So you make sure that you get it. Um, 
So it, it's been great talking with you, man. We'll have to do this again sometime when your next thing comes out, because uh, this is a very creative, very unusual book, which I love something different. I, variety is such a big deal to me. I mean, that's why I think I like this so much. It's so different and so unique. So I think you did a great job with it. And I look forward to more of your work in the future. Thank you so much, man. It's been a it's a real been a real pleasure being here. Lovely to meet you. And uh, yeah, I, I, absolutely. I'd love to chit chat again when there's more stuff. People need dramatic examples to shake them out of apathy. And I can't do that as Bruce Wayne, as a man. From flesh and blood, I can be ignored, I can be destroyed, but it's a symbol. Get the latest from the comics universe. News, interviews, previews, and reviews. Listen to the weekly Wayne's Comics Podcast so you can keep reading your comics. Corruption, greed, and runaway technology have come to a breaking point in the not-too-distant future, when a seemingly random murder in the area known as Tech Slum turns out to be much more than it appears, the corpse is discovered to be enhanced with illegal biotech, an even deeper mystery is uncovered. Investigating FBI agent Vera Morales pulls at the threads, uncovering the victim's connection to a reclusive techno-cultist and becomes embroiled in a conspiracy that could very well change the course of human evolution. With all clues pointing to a leading weapons developer, can Vera find him and solve the mystery before humanity as we know it passes the point of no return? From Emmy and Peabody-winning TV writer Daniel Powell and newcomer Aaron Foley-Chan, along with fan-favorite artist Dennis Calero, comes this sci-fi noir series like no other. Neurocrime. This time, I think we'll do something different. Let's have each person tell how we can follow them on social media. Let's have ladies first. So, Aaron. Oh, oh, goodness. Um, I believe I'm at Aaron Foley Chan um, across platforms, although I'm usually more on Instagram than um, than any other. Um, okay. I just lurk on TikTok, uh, and <laughs> I don't really tweet anymore. So. <laughs> Okay, how about, let's, let's go alphabetically. Dan, how about you? Yeah, you know, I, I need to get a public Instagram because mine's been private because I have younger kids and I would post pictures right. of them. I need to get like a official public one. I am on Twitter, although just like Aaron, I, uh, I, I it's been less and less uh, in recent days, uh, weeks, months. Um, but I am there. For no reason, I'm sure. <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, just for no reason. And uh, I, well, I, what I will say is, is you should absolutely follow invader comics go to invadercomics.com all of their socials are on their website it's it's you know they're a true indie label and and obviously in this day and age an indie comic label is not like you know it's it's a labor of love these guys are all writer and creators themselves uh, you know they're very passionate about the medium so i would say if you know obviously dennis please give your socials but i would say on if, if i were to direct you to mine i would say um i'm just forwarding you on to invader to, to follow those guys Okay, Dennis? Uh, just DennisCalero.com. Uh, two N's, one L. Uh, I, I do uh, 
I have been known to be on a certain unnamed platform that we haven't talked that much about, but I've, I've issued that for Blue Sky. But really, it's mostly just Instagram, uh, and that's just my name, and again, uh, and, and my website. Yeah, artists tend to go on Instagram. I've I've discovered so that that's a good thing. It's it's, it's very visual. This is why I'm not on there because I'm not. I can't take pictures all that well, so I'm not good on Instagram. <laughs> I'm sure that's not true. So the first issue, uh, according to this, uh, it's going to be the project will conclude on Saturday, February the 10th at 3 p.m. And when is the first issue going to be complete? Uh, maybe Dennis is the one to ask that. First issue is complete. Uh, first it's issue already. is complete. Second issue is complete. Third issue is complete, except for a, a few corrections. Um, and I'm going to all, you know, knock on wood, I'll start issue four next week. Oh, wow. Okay, so this, this is going along quite well. So, I, see, so many times I talk with people on Kickstarter, and they have not started the project yet. And I'm going like, well, once I get the money, then I'll start working on it. I'm like, that's always a dangerous way to run a Kickstarter, because what happens if real life gets in the way? And you don't I mean, you know, that's definitely it. something that happens when, when uh, and, I, and guys, please talk over me if I'm, if I'm monopolizing the conversation. No, no. Uh, which I love to do. Um, <laughs> not to put too fine a point on it, it, these are indie comics, but everyone on this team is an experienced person with, with decades and decades of experience. And we know what we're doing. You know, not that we're infallible or anything, but we're, we're, we've, we've gone through that process of stumbling and trying to figure out what works and what doesn't work for us. And so we're just, you know, we were confident in this story and, and decided to just, you know, move forward both barrels blasting. Like, let's just, let's just do this. And what's nice about comics other than you know, film or other mediums, you know, writing novels or, or, uh, or, uh, or drawing comics, is that you, you could conceivably, a person could conceivably write and draw an entire graphic novel while maintaining a job doing something else. Uh, mm. So many other art forms require so much money and so much um, dedication of time uh, that they really have to be done by people who can afford to do it full time. Comics mm. is, but I've always loved about comics is, is, is that punk rock aspect of like, it's a page. We can do anything on it. Let's just, let's just throw everything at the wall and, uh, and have a party. It's just how, that's why I've always loved comics as a medium. Well, you bring up a subject that I'd love to touch on, maybe with Dan as well. Do you find it helpful to have experience in the visual arts as opposed to doing uh, – I often think that people who work in movies and television make better comics than people who say don't do that because they think visually. I think so – um, oh, sorry, I was just going to say I think Dan also being a very experienced director – uh, has right. a really good mind for, you know, comics, even though for Dan and I, we're writing a script, it is still a visual medium for us because we're planning, you know, 100%. how many panels, how many panels are on this page and what's taking place in each panel. And part of the learning curve when Dan and I first started to write Neurocron was um, just kind of converting our mindsets from writing a script for film or television where you just say, she walks across the room and sits at her desk. Well, that's not a very interesting page of a comic. Mm. And so you really consolidate the action and really it's, there's so much intention to every panel and you have to train your brain to think, think like a director. And Dan already had that mindset being, uh, you know, already in a, a director. And I think that informs writing comics um, just as much as coming up with the actual story. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it, yeah. you know, it is it is a visual medium. I will say, and Aaron's so kind. I you know, is that there was definitely a learning curve for me because I'm used to writing in like final draft format and and used to writing for the screen where there is movement and sound and things like that that there just aren't right. in common. And you know, my company produces a, a handful of podcasts, and that's another thing where you can't just take something that was written for the screen and turn it into a podcast necessarily. Sometimes you can, but a lot of times it really just needs to be adapted for the medium. It's, you know, it's funny. I've seen some comics adapted where if you're too literal in adapting it from the page to the screen, it can become like much more violent because, you know, look at you see someone get shot on a comic book page. You're not seeing the blood splatter. You're not hearing the sound, you know? Right. And so if you do it literally exactly as it happened on the page, it just inherently becomes different when you're seeing it in motion and when you're hearing it. And if you're going in reverse, as, as Aaron sort of alluded to, there's just a different style of pacing in comics. And, and Greg, our editor, was really helpful in terms of just being like, look, you have to think like our first my first couple drafts before Aaron came on board. He de- Greg definitely said this reads like you're a TV writer trying to write a comic book and you really have to be a little bit more in tune with the pacing of the medium, with the way it works and and, right. you know, so I, I do very intentionally, and Aaron does as well, we write our scripts in the style of comic scripts, not in final draft. You know, we do try to make it more specifically the comic style of writing. But there was a learning curve there um, just because they're, you know, even though they're both visual mediums, there is an inherent difference. So it, it's almost the, the, the weird way I like to think about it is when you think of an X-Men book and you think of the best X-Men movies – there's still like substantial differences in terms of what it looks right. like on the page versus what it looks like on the screen. So you almost have to think of that in reverse where it's like, okay, if, if I did want this to become a TV show one day, I don't want to, it's not going to be a literal one-to-one translation. It is the version that becomes adapted into a TV show, not right. like the, you know, a, a novelization or something along those lines. So that, you know, it, there are those differences in the media that we, we really have to try to do our best to be in tune with. Because there was a well, book I, re- I read one time called it was Ultimate Fantastic Four, and sometimes sure. in comics people think in terms of trade paperbacks rather than individual issues, and the, this one issue was literally the Fantastic Four going from the meeting room to getting in the Fantastic car and leaving the building, and that was the whole twenty-two pages. Was them. <laughs> and I literally sat there and I said, "Man, I wasted my money on this book." I. I I don't want this to read them, but see, you got to think they're thinking trade paperback. And so this is part of the whole story. But if you buy the individual issue, it's very, I, I found it extremely boring. I, I, I don't care what they talk about when they walk in the hallways. It doesn't well, mean to speak, to speak to what Dan was talking about and Aaron real quick, Dan, I, I, I want to compliment you because even uh, when I began getting your very first scripts, I, I got a script once from a TV writer, a very, a very well-known respected respected tv writer and in one panel this person had someone turning a light off and on and then on again in one panel <laughs> and, I'm, and i'm like i can't I, I i went to the editor and i said i can't do this because I, I i can't this is so far from how this is supposed to work that this six panel page for example is going to end up being 18 panels because she's cramming too many uh Oh, I mean, this person, this person is <laughs> too much, too much stuff into every single panel. It's, it's, it's. Look, it's weird. I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. Cut it out if you don't like it. But I, in, I was drawing Legion of Superheroes, and there's a panel where I had one of the characters saying something 
kind of obnoxious, kind of being douchey and obnoxious. And the character behind him was kind of giving him, uh, you know, rabbit ears, giving him, uh, you know, uh, uh, raspberry, silent raspberry, uh, making the person in front of the douchebag laugh. But, and I kept getting emails about how confusing this panel was. And what I realized is the guy making the gesture is on the leftmost part of the panel. What the guy is saying that is inspiring this gesture, quote unquote, hasn't happened yet. Mm. And so when they did the trade, I had them flip the panel and it worked so much better. It's like, it's, it's such a subtle, and you can drive yourself crazy thinking about it, but it's such a subtle thing about how time moves through a panel, how many things you can put in, in one set of actions in a panel. I mean, I find the process fascinating. Well, like I, when I read the panels, you know, you've got to – your mind has to fill in the gap from one panel to the next. Right. And that's what – like with your art, Dennis, I really – I never worry about that because I just flow nicely with it. And that's, that's the way a comic has to be. If it's if it's too stable and too stolid, uh, you know, if I see this one panel and that's the end of it, then what would I want to read? And that's the challenge that you guys mm-hmm. have when you make it a comic. You've got to make it so that the story flows. I mean, a cover is a beautiful thing. But even covers, when I talk to cover artists, they want to have some sort of a story or something going on so that right. – your mind fills in something with it. It's not just a, it's not a person sitting there. It's mm. something's happening. And that's what, what the good thing about that. Cause even like the covers on here, uh, you've got this red cover with the girl looking and you, she's looking off panel. And of course we're wondering what she's looking at, you know, what, what's going on there. And that's what, what is I like. she looking at. You know what she's looking at? You know, you know what she's looking at? Nothing. She's, just <laughs> she's. I like to think of it, I like to think of it like it's a movie set, and she's looking off at like the gaffer, uh, <laughs> the guy holding the boom mic. Um, no, I, I. You know, it's funny. I I read almost exclusively trade paperbacks. I rarely read floppies anymore. Even Batman, all the Batman titles, which I love, I just wait for the. You know, I'm six months behind because I wait for the trade paperback. But I have to say, like, you know, looking at like some of the original non-superhero stuff that's in sci-fi fantasy like monstrous and um saga which are incredible books i i still feel like there's a lot of value in even if you're reading sort of a six chapter arc a six issue arc um there's so much value in the structure of the single issue chapter because it requires you to like to end on a cliffhanger to really make sure that every 24 pages you have you know, two to two and a half action sequences so that you're not just dialogue scene after dialogue scene after dialogue scene. I tend to write, I overwrite dialogue and, and I like to have like conversations between characters. And sometimes those are more dynamic on film than they are in comic books. So you have to like pace those up. And I, I think it's, I think doing it in the chapterized format, even if you're thinking long-term about, the overall arc of the trade paperback, it's still very helpful to me to think in that chapter to chapter structure. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, th- the thing that gets me, I, I've got to go back to this panel. that's going to give me nightmares because I, <laughs> Dennis, well, Dennis, where did you get the, it's the, you know, they cut the skull off and there you see inside the brain and all this electronic stuff going on in there. How did you draw that? I mean, did you, was that like a great talent? That was actually a very collaborative image with Dan. Dan had, I think Dan had a very, Dan both had, a, correct me, Dan, if I'm wrong, or just, you know, be quiet. Uh, I had a, 
Dan, I think, had a very specific idea or somewhat of an idea about what it's supposed to look like. And I kind of did a couple of things and tried a couple of things. And no, not, that's not quite right. How about more like this? Okay, how about that? Okay, that's closer. And little by little, we kind of we kind of sculpt this thing together. So there was definitely, uh, you know, Dan guiding me, helping me to understand um, sort of what his point of view on this image was supposed to be. Yeah, that image was tough because – there's a little bit of a spoiler here, but it is the inciting event. So it's not like it's like the last page. It is, you know, they, there's this murder. They, they call a specialist at the FBI and she's like, this, this seems like just any regular murder. Like, why am I being called at this hour? And they suspect that this corpse has been enhanced with, which, with what are, you know, in, in this near future time period, like federally banned um, cybernetic enhancements, specifically in the, in the subject's brain, which is, you know, very strongly forbidden and they, they do an autopsy and they remove the top of the skull. And then you see on sort of our, our main title page about eight pages in um, that this person's brain is some sort of enhancements. And the, the reason that it's difficult is because what I really didn't want was something that looks like the inside of data's head from like, you know, migration or like, you know, really like technological griebling, like, you know what I mean? Because right. realistically, this sort of technology, it would be like microscopic. It would be, you know, it would be meant to interact with neurons, which you, you see through a microscope. So it wouldn't look like some piece of robotics implanted inside. It would be like a, a, a series of almost microscopic electronics. And so Dennis had to convey this, you know, I don't know if this, and Dennis, you can jump in. I, I don't know if the, this image works in black and white, like so much of what- No, you need the color. color. You need color. the color. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I, I don't want it to get lost in the in the discussion because I think that uh, and Dan, you could speak to this. Um, what's wonderful and makes this so noirish specifically is is that sense of we're talking about a technology that that scares people. Sort of this idea of augmenting your like it's one thing to sort of like hey I lost my hand in an accident but you know give me a mechanical hand and I'm Luke Skywalker that's cool. But the idea of like well what if I use some of this machinery to augment my intelligence? Or to make me a better artist, and then begins to get into an area of like, well, where does the human stop and the machine start? And if you, but if you outlaw that technology because of its scary uh, implications, maybe there's applications of that to help people uh, with dementia or other sort of issues, uh, with, even with things like anxiety, like I have, like or ADHD, like I have. Uh, is it fair to those people? to ban that technology. And I think these are, these are really, Dan, I was going to have you speak to this, but I obviously have spoken to this, but uh, <laughs> these are really interesting ideas that, that really make this story fascinating. Yeah. I mean, you know, look, even the people who seem to be, um, you know, potential villains and potential su suspects in this mystery, you know, their interest in this technology is tends to be well-intentioned, which is they might have a family member who's suffering from Alzheimer's or dementia. And like this, might be, you know, with a ticking clock, this might be their only, the only way to reverse that condition after, after, you know, decades of research has, has failed in other areas, but society and, and the version of the society that we've created has looked at this technology and said, whatever the possible upsides might be, the potential downsides and risks are significantly higher. I, you know, obviously, right. how do you even test this technology in an ethical way? You know, like, right. that's exactly. one thing. And I guess Elon Musk, you know, we, we started yeah. working on this before Neuralink, but now that's a, um, you know, a real company. And I guess he's going to have to figure out how to, I, I was going to 
test this in a way that complies with like, you know, the FDA. But um, th- there's also just like, if you have a brain that is sort of perfectly synced up with a, com- you know, an advanced computer, it can, can your brain be influenced over the internet? Can someone control right. you without even knowing that you're being controlled? Like these are significant moral and ethical issues. And, and that's really what we wanted to explore. And of course we're, you know, we are doing it through a murder mystery because that is the most entertaining way to do it. But um, it, we are trying to sort of <laughs> ground it in, you know, we, we want these issues to, you know, I, I, these are issues that I think we are going to be confronting in the coming decades and we wanted to explore them, but we want to explore them in a way that was, you know, uh, mysterious action packed and entertaining. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, I, I, I always think of Star Trek when we get into these kinds of things. And sure. you know, talked about data and, and his brain and all and, and one of their great episodes of Next Generation was Measure of a Man, where they actually sure. want to know is, is data alive. And that's kind of the, the that where that line gets blurred, I think, is where it's really interesting to me. Right. And I think that's what your book is doing. You're exploring those blurry gray areas. And I think that's always so fascinating because you're right, there's practical applications, but there's impractical applications that some people are going to want. And, and of course, with AI, everybody now they're, they're trying to regulate it and stuff like that. How, how far can they regulate it? Yeah. I mean, we, it's, you know, Aaron. You know, look. Obviously, AI is completely synthetic and is and is a machine intelligence. But we wanted to explore sort of like if it is something that happens in incrementally. At what point are you no longer human? At what point are you more right. machine than man? And yeah. Aaron, we're and all I, frogs getting boiled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Aaron and I wrote this monologue in in the second issue where we use the ship of Theseus analogy for that exact issue. And unfortunately over the, between when we wrote it and now what Wanda vision used the exact same, basically had a very similar monologue. And I was like, God damn it. Now we have to cut it. But um, (laughs) I want to say we did do it before, you know, uh, obviously they, they released it first. So they got dibs, but uh, I was bummed. Ours was so good though. (laughs) (laughs) Was it better? (laughs) you know everybody's everybody's doing a great job Uh, (laughs) i'm um, gonna use that i love writing sci-fi and writing about technology because no matter how like you know no matter how far off and outrageous the technology you're coming up with in your mind is when you put it on the page it's probably going to happen within 10 years you know like when you look back at old Star Trek original series, when you look at the technology where they're like, someday doors will open automatically. I know it sounds yeah. crazy. Um, you know, the communicator, like even, the communicator, the communicator, the, you know, they have Kirk signing off on stuff with like a pen still. A pad, yeah. Um, you know, and I, it's just, it's so interesting how innovation and, and creation of technology works that, that is, you know, what drives technology forward is people just sitting down and thinking, like, what's the what most outrageous thing that could help humanity and could help me in this, you know, in this mortal coil? And, um, and it's just so interesting to see Neuralink come, you know, come out, come to be after we'd already started this process. You know, it's just it's just so fun and so interesting to write about 
the perils of technology and then watch it happen. Yeah. Is, you yeah. mentioned a story I have to comment on. I, I saw Star Trek with the doors open. Of course, they, they had somebody behind there right. moving yeah, the doors. Yeah, the PA is opening them. Yeah. But the first time I, I, I walked into a grocery store and the door opened in front of me, I went, oh. <gasps> Star Trek. Oh no. <laughs> what is this? And how can this possibly be? And I remember I stood there on the pad for a while and the door closed and then I moved forward and it opened up again. And I went, I looked around to see if anybody was on the sides because I knew that's how they did it. And I was so stunned by the door actually opening just like Star Trek did that I was, see, I thought, I, I'm, I, I worried that this kind of stuff, we're actually getting into a place now where this kind of technology is not only possible, it's probable. Yeah, that's the oh, thing no. that we're it's, a, it's, it's, it's it's inevitable. Yeah. Uh, what, yeah. what alarmed me is walking into. Do it. No, no, please go ahead. Oh, I just said if you can dream it, you can do it. Don't worry about it. I please continue. What you're actually saying. <laughs> no, it's just so good. It's it. now, of course, the first issue you said you've already got the artwork is together on issue one, so it's very likely that early March is when a lot of these editions uh, will be coming out. And once again, I want to say that the project will only be funded if it reaches its goal by Saturday, February 10 at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And of course, you've already met the goal, but the good news is you can keep going, and maybe yeah, you won't have to more. do one for more, do issue two because you're enough on issue one that you don't have to do <laughs> a star for issue two. No, yeah, I, still I want more. <laughs> um, yeah i, I want to shout out the team at invader comics who took this on as publishers and th yes. they're, they're really the driving force behind the kickstarter because they wanted to increase awareness of the book and um you know we might do ones for future issues but look one thing is for certain if you spend your money on issue one you don't have to worry oh will, th will there be an issue two will will this cliffhanger be paid off we, we we've we're completing the four issue miniseries. You will find out uh, who the killer is by the end. You don't have to worry. Obviously, we hope you like issue one enough that you go back and buy issues two, three, and four, and then eventually, you know, there will be a trade paperback later this year. But um, I, I do have to say, and I know you mentioned it earlier that um, look, I, I you know, I'm also if you, if you could see my office right now, surrounded by piles and piles and stacks of books. But <laughs> I have to say, having been working on this for a long time, where all I got to see was the digital versions and version after version after version, you know, from the roughs to the inks to the colors, I have to say there's nothing like seeing Dennis's art on the physical page. Invader uses really high quality, you know, paper and printing. And I was like blown away at the difference between seeing it on the physical, reading it on the physical page and seeing it online because Dennis's art is just so incredible. Thank you. That's great. Cause I work yeah, on really it. I work on an indie comic. I'm an editor on an indie comic, and my roommate was the one who developed it. And the, the, there's this interesting stages you go through when you create a comic because we were looking for an artist, and we kept, he's kept sending out, I want to see what this character would look like. And they would send drawing backs. And we saw this one drawing come in, and we said, whoa, is that what the character would look like? And that ended up, ended up being the artist. And it was so interesting because, you know, when you see the, the, the thing in print for the first time, when you see all these different stages of a comic, you know, you, you just – I hope you never get over that, the, the, the thrill of actually seeing things and, and print and stuff. Dennis, by now, it's old hat for you. I'm sure you've done – No, no. I never get tired. I never get tired of, of getting <laughs> that book in the mail and going – because it, it, I'm not the only one. This is hardly a, a unique thing. But I, I, when everything is done, I'm, I'm at best – a little better than ambivalent. Like I'm focused on what I didn't do right, what I could have done a little oh. better, yada, yada, yada. And then what's, what is nice is mo most of the time, not always, 
But most of the time I get I get that book back and it's lettered and it's a real comic and I go, you know what, that's not that bad. This is pretty good. <laughs> you know, it's so funny how people do the creative people tend to look at it and see what you didn't do. But the rest it's, of it's us look at it and see what you process. Do. The rest of us look at it and see what you did do. I I was on a long time ago when Star Trek Deep Space Nine was on the TV, and one of the creators was on AOL. Tell how long ago this was, and he was they we would do stuff, and he kept talking about the episodes, and it didn't turn out the way we wanted. This was just this didn't work sure. out right, and, this, and we kept saying, "Are you crazy? This is a great episode. How, what are you saying that, that, that didn't turn out as, as well as you hoped?" This is fantastic. You know, we would tell I, I think there's a component of that. Like when you talk about someone like, let's say, William Shatner, who for a long time didn't really seem to want to embrace Kirk. And then later in life, he realized how special this was and how people felt about it. And, I, and my personal theory is maybe he began to see what other people began to see what we're seeing in his work. And I think that happens to a lot of people who do intense amounts of work that require a lot, you know, a lot of labor, a lot of skill. Um, and and I also believe that, uh, sadly, uh, if you're if you tend to be really good at something, you're probably really hard on yourself. That's that's probably part of the process and learning to learning to live with that as part of the process. Uh, I think is the only thing that keeps you sane, decade well, after decade. It is. There, there it is part of. Um, it is part of the process to create something is that you go over it over and over and over again and look for things you can improve, things you can do better. And I don't think we can really turn that off when it's done. We're still like, oh, you know, I wish I could have changed that to make that like a little bit more. You know, I think it's just the mode that our brains are in. And I think it's tough to turn it off. Well, there are actors like who can't watch themselves on television. Because when they see that, oh, I should have moved this way, and oh, this didn't go the way that I wanted, I, I could have been better if I had done this or something like that. And so it, it's, you know, it, 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 I guess it's part of the creative process is that just doesn't stop. Yeah, I know, I know a lot of great actors who will not watch themselves, including like there is a producer on a show I work on who's also one of the actors in the show. He's incredible in it, and um, he's 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 a series regular on a very very well known show. And like when we're in the edit and he's on screen, he kind of, you can sort of see him like dissociate and not chime in <laughs> because he just doesn't, you know, he doesn't want to see himself like that. And it's, um, it's interesting. I mean, it is, yeah, it is one of these things where you get so close to something from inception all the way to when you're finished that it is hard to say pencils down and perfect is the enemy of good and walk away from right, the canvas exactly. and all those other things. Because, you know, I, I almost am nervous as a producer I'm always terrified the first time I see something on platform that like there was something that we missed or in the, even in the process of quality control, like when the network compresses it, it's going to look like shit all of a sudden, you know what I mean? Like all these things mm -hmm. where I'm, and then it's like over and done and you can't do anything about it. I mean, I guess now these days you can like, you know, paint out a coffee cup in game of Thrones and put it back on air. But like, um, <laughs> I'm always, I'm always just like so paranoid about watching something for the first time on platform because it, your whole job is to make sure that you didn't miss anything. And if you did, then it's just like, you know, it's too late. Hard to watch. But you can't, but, but it was like when they, they went back and they went to trouble with tribbles, there was a coffee stain that was on Leonard Nimoy's blue, jer uh, blue tunic. And they actually, when they went back there, they took the coffee stain out of his blue tunic when they went back and they, they remodeled, they rechanged it all. And so, so, hey, 
you could still go back and change it. And there's a lot of people I know when they do the trade paperbacks, they go back and say, well, okay, now we can make the changes we, we wanted to make. Now in the trade, we'll put those changes in there. Uh, I, I will a say lot, a, lot, a lot easier to do that. I can tell yeah, you yeah. that. I will say, um, and Greg, uh, Greg, please forgive me if you're listening to this, but um, if you do want to get the limited edition um, variant cover that is on Kickstarter, it's a little bit more money. There are two typos that we removed for the, uh, for the store for the store issue. So uh, if you want to get a version, a very limited version that um, is very slightly different and catch those typos, then uh, feel free to uh, go to Kickstarter and, and buy the get a beautiful metal bookmark. <laughs> <laughs> but see, I, I'm, I'm a proofreader by nature, and I, if, I, I'll be sitting watching TV with my friends, and all of a sudden I go, oh, they spelled refrigerator wrong. And my friends look at me and go, what? <laughs> You're going to ruin the whole show if you keep doing those kinds of things. So it, it's we can't turn that off, I guess we never will. But uh, I have to say, I what I've read so far of, of Neurocron number one is tremendous. I can't wait to see the, the future issues. It, it's such a terrific uh, story and idea. Thank and you so much. It's, it's transports me out of where I am, and I'm in that uh, universe while I'm reading it. And it's a combination. It's the perfect marriage of, of writing and, and art and everything. It just works so strongly and so well. So oh, thank you so great. much. Thank you. It's just terrific. Okay, once again, let me, I, I always, people say I don't say it nearly enough. So let me just say this once more. Project will be funded for reaches goal by Saturday, February 10 at 3 p.m. Eastern time. And at this point, you're, you're uh, more than double the, the $666 goal. So good stuff. You, you guys are in a place where many, many creators would like to be when it comes to Kickstarter, I have to say. So congratulations on that. You guys have created a great comic. I cannot wait to see how this comes together. I'm going to have to buy the trade when it's all done. Every once in a while, I just want to get lost in a world for a while, and this is one of those worlds I'm going to want to stay in. So, again, it's Neurocron number one. Go to Kickstarter. You'll find it there. And if you go to invadercomics.com, you can buy it there as well. It's a different version. But uh, well, before we go, one last thing, Dan. What's the difference? Is, is the cover the difference between the two versions? Yes, the cover is the only difference. Is the the chapter inside, aside excluding the uh, the two fixed typos, um, is the uh, <laughs> is the only difference. So it's the same story, but if you want, uh, you know, a limited edition exclusive, then you can go to the Kickstarter. If you're just interested in reading the the book for you know the the, the same price as you'd get in comic book stores, you can go to invadercomics.com. And if Very you good. go to the Kickstarter, um, you like I said, you do get a um, beautiful metal bookmark with it, but right. you also can add on a lot of very cool looking invader comics merch in the add-ons of the kickstarter and their logo is like the coolest logo and um their merch is very cool you can add on other books by them too if you want to like explore some other titles they have because they've got tons of really great stuff very good very good well appreciate talking with you all and i can't wait for people to get a hold of this book because the pages that i read like i said when i got that last page i said that's not the last page please don't let that be the last page oh yeah so, we want you to be furious at the end that's <laughs> I, I, I want more i want There's I'm some more. more that's right and that's the thing so you guys did a great job again neurocron n-e-u-r-o-c-r-o-n for because the internet is unforgiving when it comes to spelling and mm-hmm. you want to be sure to get that Kickstarter and again, Invader Comics. Again, you guys have done a wonderful book. I hope you guys get to do more. Is, is there a chance for a Neurocron 2? I uh, mean, as far as a different series? We, we were hoping to do a second four issue miniseries to sort of complete the story. And then my, my dream, of course, is to have one of those beautiful hardcover 
you know, uh, eight chapter uh, uh, editions. But um, look, let, let's see how the first four do. We, 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 we intentionally did it in a way where we close the book on the initial mystery, but we leave enough open-ended that there could absolutely be a, a sequel miniseries. And that, that is the hope. Very, very smartly done. Very good. Well, thanks, you guys. It's great to talk with you again. Be sure to get the Kickstarter and get Neurocron number one. Or if you want to go to invadercomics.com, I'm sure you're going to enjoy it because I, I, what I've seen so far has just got me. I'm hooked. I've got to see more. So yeah, keep up the wonderful stuff. Wonderful. Thanks Thank so you so much. And that's it for this week. Be sure to be back next time when I'll have another great interview with yet another terrific comics creator. But until then, keep reading your comics. Over, Joker. Over? Why, my dear delusional dark knight, it hasn't even begun.